0: Hello, everyone. This is Fortune's Wheel, and I am your host, Jonathan. To begin, a very heartfelt Happy New Year to everyone listening. It's a couple weeks late, but I hope your this year is better than your last year. And here on the podcast, I'm looking forward to another great year of learning and growing and understanding our shared history. These folks, for better or for worse, are the people who lived whole lives before we were even thought of. And they again, for better or for worse... ...sought only to make things better and easier for their children. We are products of generations of parents simply trying to survive and improve the lives of their progeny. Simply put, we are who we are because they were who they were. In our first episode of the year, we jump right back into our coverage of the Norman Conquest of England... ...under the reign of King William I. So what's left in the wake of such tragedy, the tragedy of William's actions in the North and throughout the Northern Midlands. Over the last 15 episodes, give or take a couple of opportunities for bonus content, we've fleshed out just four years of a decades-long conquest of the Normans over the Kingdom of England. And this doesn't include the episodes released for Patreon members covering how Ireland adjusted after the Battle of Clontarf, how the Welsh influenced, and were influenced, by the conquest happening on the other side of the dike, and the grand shift in the political direction within Flanders that fundamentally changed Norman confidence on the continent. All of this in just four years. But on this episode, we see both sides of this conquest reeling. Reeling over the loss of sovereignty and loss of property, but most importantly, loss of life. Today's episode, episode 88, is entitled Reeling. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Quote, In the harrying of the North, William had not behaved as an English king. He had behaved like a tyrant. End quote. This from historian Peter Aykroyd in his 2011 tome entitled Foundation, The History of England from Its Earliest Beginnings to the Tudors. He continues, quote, Spies and collaborators, punishment beatings and secret murders, the whole panoply of occupation and insurgency were indispensable, end quote. And in the wake of Yorkshire being laid to waste and its inhabitants, combatant and non-combatant alike, either dead, dying, or fleeing. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, writes, The people of Durham had fled to the woods and the mountains. They had heard about Yorkshire's terrible fate. The kingdom was left in shock, essentially while Northumbrians continued to flee into the harsher living conditions of the wild forests and hilltops of northern England by the end of January 1070. There was a pause in the records. Like, no one knew what to do. How to to be in the wake of such unprecedented devastation. The kingdom was sent reeling. A fundamental shift in their worldview occurred that winter. It was then, in early February 1070, that William decided to, as Morris puts it, quote-unquote, give up the hunt through the region. He returned to York and assumed control of the rebuilding efforts, his loyal friend William fitzosborne nearby, for a while anyway. An interesting point that draws out this harrying beyond the reaches of just Northumbria in mid to late winter of 1070, according to Morris, who writes that William, quote-unquote, sets off to deal with the remaining rebels in Mercia, most likely meaning those led by Edric the Wild, whom we've spoke of on the podcast already. Morris continues, quote, Orderick says simply that he suppressed the risings there, quote-unquote, with royal power, but we can safely infer that more harrying occurred. The Doomsday Book shows a dramatic drop in values for the counties along the Welsh border. End quote from Morse. Now, William, <laughs> he was riding high, no doubt, after his actions in Northumbria. Such destruction, such shows of dominance tends to fuel bullies like William into further acts of terror and dominance. Orderic Vitalis writes of William's push from York to Chester in Mercia, saying, quote, "...he pushed on with determination along a road the horsemen had attempted before." Over steep mountains and precipitous valleys, through rivers and rushing streams and deep abysses. As they stumbled along the path, they were lashed with rain and hail. Sometimes all were obliged to feed on horses which had perished in the bogs. End quote. We focus considerably on the English plight throughout this entire conquest, and rightfully so, but it's pretty clear that William and his Norman knights and assorted mercenaries, weren't exactly having the easiest go of it either. And let's not forget about the desertions that the harrying forced in William's forces. William was losing men for various reasons beyond just battle, including, again, desertion, and leaving them behind to garrison the vast number of castles and mountain baileys he directed around the kingdom already. William was making do with fewer and fewer men each month, And herein lies the unspoken challenge that William faced throughout the conquest, the constant threat of revolt from his own men. See, it's an age-old problem of conquerors, going as far back as Alexander. You may be kind, but you also have loyalists, only as long as you can provide increasing prizes for them. Loyalty is a fickle thing. Morris quotes Orderic Vitalis that, Even before he'd left York for Chester, quote, the men of Anjou, Brittany, and Maine complained loudly that they were grievously burdened with intolerable duties and repeatedly asked the king to discharge them from his service. They urged in defense of their conduct that they could not obey a lord who went from one hazard to the next and commanded them to do the impossible. End quote. This tiny passage speaks volumes of what William was dealing with internally. So we heard from Orderic Vitalis, but Morris follows it up with his own explanation quote, During the winter of 1069 to 1070, conditions in William's army were clearly so bad that there appears to have been something approaching a mutiny. End quote. He goes on to say that there was widespread desertion at this point. Now, what was William to do in this situation but offer untold rewards for those who stayed with him? Morris, when he writes of William's proposed new round of confiscation, he's referring to the sheer number of vacant manors around the kingdom by this point. And if you choose to stick with him heading into the spring of 1070, then he would reward you with some of these vacant manors. Well, it was enough for some, and some support is all William ever needed to be successful. Morris writes that these lost lands, quote, probably included Edgar Etheling and certainly his fellow Merrill Swain, whose estates were transformed to a Norman called Ralph Pagnall, end quote. Now, Morris continues, though, quote, other Normans who received lands around this time included William de Percy, who was active in restoring order to Yorkshire after the rebellion, and Hugh Fitzbaldrick, who became the county's new sheriff, end quote. But is land what these men really wanted, you know, given the circumstances? Well, think about it. They were in a strange land among strange people who spoke a strange language and practiced strange customs. Even the Christian ones were strange. And once more, these people hated them. What could they possibly hope to get out of this except spending the rest of their lives looking over their shoulders, as they already have for the previous couple years? Morris writes, Even the hardiest and hungriest of Normans might have thought twice about accepting estates on such a wild and desolate frontier and having to wonder whether each day might bring a new English rising or Danish invasion. By the end of the campaign, many of William's troops would doubtless have preferred to receive the kind of award they could carry back home to the continent. And given the sheer amount of wealth, you know, from actual jewels and other valuables to currency, already squeezed from around the kingdom in the previous four years, what physical wealth was left? Well, the answer is, emphatically, not enough to pay William's men. William FitzOsbern hatched a plan that might solve William's immediate problem. Order all churches to be searched and relieved of every single valuable and source of wealth. All to be, ought to be brought to William. Morris writes, quote, There can be little doubt, given the timing of the raid, that this loot became the, quote-unquote, lavish rewards distributed to, kings, to the king's troops when they were dismissed at Salisbury a short while later, end quote. Now, Morris says that by March of 1070, the western Marchlands were suitably secure with several more Mott and Baileys constructed along the Welsh border, all garrisoned with stout forces. Morris writes, quote, after almost two years of fighting, the English revolt was over, end quote. Now, to what end, I ask? Sure, William was firmly king by spring of 1070, but king of what, exactly? He had secured one of the most prosperous kingdoms in all of Christendom by destroying it and subjugating its subjects. You know, my son, he listens to me record each of these episodes, He's actually listening right now. Uh, He's only 14, but he's endlessly curious about history. And as he was listening to the recording of the last episode regarding the harrying of the North, afterwards, I asked him how it was. I often do that. He mentioned something interesting. He mentioned that I hadn't exactly set William up as the creator of the England we know today. He was still a murderous, vengeful tyrant, in his estimation anyway. I paraphrase. And it got me thinking about well, the creation of the England we know today. All of this so far in this season of the podcast isn't exactly putting the creator of England's current incarnation in a very good light. Now, I get it. He who lives in glass houses shouldn't cast stones. The United States of America certainly has its own sins to account for, to some degree, but with the fly-by lessons we get on how England, in its you know more modern form, that is, was created hardly puts William the Conqueror in a terribly negative light. But I've yet to, discover, uh, to uncover what positive light he has yet to shed upon his kingdom's future at this point in the narrative. And I repeat, at this point in the narrative. As my son said in so many words, at some point we need to start s- to see the shift in William's approach to the English. Well, I wish I had better news for him. It would take generations, yes, generations, for the Norman nobility to stop using the language of us and them when referring to the English. From William down to, say, King John, in a little over a century, the nobility would see their subjects always as something less than. But William would eventually begin to pull this rebellious kingdom together even if it required him to drag them kicking and screaming the entire way, but not before a few more major challenges to his rule. Now, between early December of 1069 and Easter of 1070, William trekked his way from York to Stafford to York to Chester, where William came to the brink of all-out mutiny, remember, to York, to Hereford, to York, and then eventually he made his way down to Winchester. By late winter, there was business to attend to, notably the paying off of his debts to his soldiers we mentioned earlier, those who stuck around thus far, that is, but he also had a visit from Rome as well. But first, as William was wont to do, there was a little hunting to do to take his mind off of the previous year or so, which, it bears repeating, had pushed him to his very extremes, to say the least. Tracy Borman, author of Wife of the Conqueror, writes, quote, The New Forest, a vast area of woodland situated close to the court at Winchester, had been created by him as a hunting ground by laying waste to scores of dwellings. It was one of the best in the country, end quote. Now she continues that William would spend days and days there, hunting big and small game alike, feasting and relaxing between hunts, and he would bring his sons with him when he went, whoever happened to be in England at the time, that is. Now Richard, William and Matilda's second born, had accompanied William on one of his first forays onto the island, if not the first foray, resulting in Hastings and his father receiving the crown outside of London a few weeks later. We're not sure, but some evidence to suggest that Richard was there for the whole beginning of it. He may have joined his parents on their back-and-forth journeys across the channel as well, but no records indicate he ever left England after he first went, so we're not exactly sure of Richard's whereabouts exactly between 1066 and 1070. And that's why we presume that as soon as he got to England, he stayed there. And what was he doing while Dad was off traipsing back and forth from one side of the island to the other? Well, Richard, apparently stayed mostly in the, and I say this in very, very firm quotation marks, stayed mostly in the safer south of England, most likely between Winchester and London and Dover, a triangle within which William had initially took control and a space from which he solidified the security of the rest of his kingdom from. Who knows for sure, but best guesses are all we can really go on some with someone like Richard, a figure who oddly is absent in the records, really, for his entire life. Now, Richard most likely spent much of his time in England, in and around Winchester, and with the new forest nearby, not quite yet a royal forest, something akin to, say, national parks and state parks here in the States, in my estimation, along with William's affinity for hunting, he would no doubt passed on to his sons, which we know from the records he did, by the way. Well, it seems in the spring of 1070, Richard was whiling himself away, riding across the fields and through the rather thick forests there, and a tragedy did occur. Now, it needs to be said that the records are, for lack of better words, ridiculously clueless on when exactly this event took place. Ridiculously clueless. Some records state as early as 1069, and others as late as 1080. But I'm inclined to lean somewhere toward the earlier years of this particular range. See, William of Malmesbury states that this occurred prior, this event, I'm about to say, occurred prior to Richard's dubbing. If you remember, dubbing was the brutal practice bestowed upon young men by older Norman knights as they entered knighthood. This means that Richard was no older than, say, 22 years at the absolute oldest, and given who his father was, and the action over the previous four to five years in England, to which Richard was partly privy to being on the island, I'd suggest he could have been a few years younger, in fact, maybe several. However. With Richard's birth year between 1056 and 1058, just after his eldest brother Robert's birth in 1055, and his eldest sister's, Adeliza's, birth shortly after, and before his younger brother William Rufus's birth in 1069, yeah. So Richard was probably, by 1070, something between 14 and 16 years old far younger than some say he was when these events unfolded there in the New Forest. Now, if you followed that, I hope you did. But all that said, again, I'm inclined to think it it might very well have happened in the spring of 1070, as William was relaxing just a bit after his harrying up north and his mini-harrying out west and throughout Staffordshire. From Edric the Wild in the west up to the Scottish and Danish-backed rebels in the north, down to the leftover rebels out in Lincolnshire, William somehow was sitting pretty, which is what makes his being in Winchester for Easter celebrations in 1070 all the more plausible. So, as William, again, headed southward rather victoriously, his son Richard, we hear, was out on one of his many hunting trips and our most reliable sources, notably William of Malmesbury and Orderic Vitalis, seem to have hovered around the same occurrence, though they varied ever so slightly in the retelling. See, Orderic narrates that the boy was, quote-unquote, galloping in pursuit of a wild beast. But before he could strike the killing blow, he was, quote, badly crushed between a strong hazel branch and the pommel of his saddle. End quote. A bit prescient, if you ask me. While Malmesbury says that Richard was, quote, hanged by the throat on the branch of a tree when his horse ran underneath it. End quote. Chronicler Robert of Torini, I hope I pronounced that right, says, says Borman, quote, claims that Richard had been riding at full speed when he had either failed to see or was too late to avoid an overhanging bough, end quote. Though folks like Malmesbury and Torini imply an instant death, Orderick asserts that Richard died a few agonizing days later. Either way, most likely in the spring of 1070, in my opinion, just before the Easter festivities in Winchester began, Richard, second son of William and Matilda, Lay dead in the New Forest, Borman writes, quote, "Richard's death was said to be to the great grief of many, none more than Matilda End quote. Richard apparently was unlike his brothers, Robert Kurthose and William Rufus. Remember Henry was still an infant during this time. It seems that Richard was well liked and accepted all around, unlike his brothers although Robert Kurthose was more or less accepted. William Rufus just seemed to be a, 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 bit, of a, a bit of a turd, you could say. Malmesbury writes that Richard was, quote, an elegant boy in possession of high ambitions, and was beloved more so than his eldest brother, Robert, though it's pretty clear that that bar is pretty low, <laughs> considering Robert Kurthose and William's relationship to this point. I'm learning that it's quite difficult to accurately describe how people behaved and how they felt a thousand years ago. In fact, the day in and day out feelings are just absent, more or less, from the records. Scant evidence compounded with very few actual writers, not to mention that, frankly, paper and ink weren't exactly cheap commodities in those days. Getting this kind of minutiae is infuriating when trying to construct a, you know, a more humanized version of history, which is what I'm trying to do. But we do have other tools, I've learned. Trends in behaviors, and spending even, seems to be incredibly telling when trying to construct how people actually felt. Because no one really tracks things like they track the flow of money. Their money. Now, money is hardly just an obsession of those dirty capitalists, as they say. As for tracking money a thousand years ago, no one was better than the Catholic Church, let's be honest and we see an interesting trend with regards to Matilda, especially. William, of course, mourned the loss of his beloved son, who wouldn't, and he, of course, spent lavishly on the church his son was buried at, which was Winchester, by the way. However, Matilda seems to have fallen into a pretty horrific state. I mean, I'm not surprised. What mother wouldn't fall into some semblance of emotion at the loss of a child? I, But seeing her spending habits throughout 1070 and into 1071, we see that she went above and beyond her normal spending. She donated large sums to an almost untold number of churches and abbeys and monasteries throughout Normandy and in her lands in England, including but not limited to St. Corniel and St. Florent in Normandy. Her most notable contribution to an ecclesiastical house Was at none other than Cluny Abbey, way down south in Burgundy. However, she would not only give money in her grief, but she would also relieve others of paying money to her. That is, a number of villages and towns in Dorset, where Matilda held quite a bit of land. And they were all relieved of taxation, as Borman states, quote, in memory of her second son, end quote. Now what's more, Matilda had supposedly received a prophecy years earlier that she would lose three sons to the new forest. Well, it's not something I've had time to dive into, but a number of sources I've found, get this, mentions Matilda being a pretty strong believer in mysticism and borderline occult practices, which was still widely and openly practiced in her homeland of Flanders in those days. When word came that Richard died while hunting in the New Forest, her worst fears must have been confirmed, which might explain her need to give lavishly to churches far and wide in order to try to, you know, buy some divine protection for her remaining boys. When things like this happened, yes, many nobles felt compelled to spend heavily on churches and whatnot, but Matilda's spending habits, they just seemed a bit over the top for the time. I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. She certainly had all right to spend her money as she saw fit, believe me. But the excess is what makes me believe that she took that prophecy pretty seriously. Either way, Richard was gone. Forever. A father had lost his son and heir, possible heir. A mother had lost part of her very being, whether, as I've attested to here, Richard died in the spring of 1070, or, as others believe, it was a year or two later, if you're inclined toward things like divine retribution, this is nothing short of it. I mean, even if you aren't inclined toward such beliefs, the death of Richard so soon after the roughest years of the Norman Conquest of England would even seem a bit suspicious in terms of timing. The loss of Richard was a bit of a turning point in a lot of ways, not to mention the moment when William and Matilda were sent reeling themselves. A fundamental shift in their very worldview had just occurred. In fact, a fundamental shift in their marriage also occurred around this time. The kingdom, everything, was just different. Not necessarily because this change occurred on the heels of the worst atrocity committed throughout the entire conquest, arguably among some of the worst atrocities in human history, mind you, rather because it occurred around the time of the worst of the fighting of William's invasion began to fade. Make no mistake, English suffering would continue. However, such concerted efforts would only pop up periodically and no longer will the entire kingdom rise up? Not as one. From now on, William would have serious, though smaller in scope, uprisings to contend with. From the spring of 1070 and the death, in my opinion, of Richard, regardless of exactly when it occurred, William would have more pressing concerns. His duchy, yeah, remember that? His duchy would come under heavy, heavy, external pressures at this point on. The loss of his support in the county of Flanders, as we learned in more detail on the latest Patreon members only episode, mind you, would undercut his continental confidence. The Danes weren't quite finished with England yet. The Ethling, don't forget him, the Ethling and his benefactor in Scotland also weren't quite finished with England. His marriage begins to show cracks as Robert Curthoes grows into his own man with his own ambitions. And the Catholic Church, as mentioned, has plans to visit and check in on some of the things they've been hearing about William's little conquest. It's not great. But before all of that stuff, there's still one thing who isn't satisfied with the direction of the kingdom as of late. Someone who has recently been disposed of his holdings and wealth and stature. Someone whose name still lingers in the backs of our minds 1,000 years later as an exemplar of resistance to tyranny. And I really can't wait to tell you about him. Thanks for listening.